Hello, 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 and welcome to the 18th episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here, we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. Today, we're going to be talking about a company that's been getting a lot of attention lately, SMRT. Though, as many of you might have read or even actually experienced, what with the number of train breakdowns, delays, finger pointing, apologizing, and even a train-on-train collision, I think it's safe to say that SMRT really wishes they weren't in the spotlight right now. However, rather than focus on the problems of management, the carelessness of staff, or the technical faults that's ruining the MRT experience, today I'm going to be focusing on a different side of SMRT, that of its corporate identity. You see, SMRT to me is somewhat of an enigma in the sense that I can't really tell if it's a public entity run by the government or if it's a private corporation directed by the will and whims of its shareholders. And everywhere you look, you see conflicting signs. For instance, SMRT has to compete with taxis, buses, and nowadays even bicycles in providing transportation services, which is unusual for purely public entities such as IRAS or SAF that tend to have a monopoly in their industry. On the other hand, it is clear to many that SMRT plays a key role in providing public transportation in Singapore, and that many of the capital decisions such as where and how much to expand the rail network can be traced directly to the transportation arm of the government, the LTA, or to the transport minister, Kaobun Wan. So, which is it? Is SMRT a profit-seeking private player that's independent from the government? Or is it actually under the control of the state? replete with financial backing and top-down decisions for the welfare of its citizens. Therefore, to get a better understanding of what SMRT is, I'm going to be investigating the very telling and certainly colorful history of its corporate existence. And through tracing its origins, its key players, and the crucial decisions made along the way, I hope to finally be able to answer the SMRT enigma of public or private. Just a note before we begin though, many of you will be familiar that SMRT as a corporation has many business lines including operating buses and taxis, but for all intents and purposes, this analysis will be focused on its mass rapid transit or MRT business line. So without further ado, let's begin. Okay, so the concept of the rail system was first raised in 1967 two years after Singapore's independence. It was included in part of a study conducted jointly by the United Nations Development Program as well as the Singapore State and City Planning Department that was looking at ways to meet traffic demands going forward. Projecting the population to reach 3.4 million by 1992, and with traffic congestion already beginning to worsen, the study proposed an improved road, road infrastructure as well as a mass transit system as a solution. However, the study alone was not enough to convince our state planners to commit resources towards the rail system, particularly during the crucial early stages of Singapore's development. Rather, in 1972, the government commissioned a team of consultants and professional officers on a study known as the Singapore Mass Transit Study, which would look at the feasibility of a rail system in three phases and which spanned almost a decade. In phase one of the study, the team looked at existing and future transportation demands of the public and examined various options for government investment in public transportation, ultimately coming up with a recommendation of the rail system as the best option to meet the future travel needs of the country. Phase two of the study began in 1975 and looked at the concept of a rail system from the lens of you know, technical, uh, from its, from its uh, technical aspects, its economic aspects, and also its financial feasibility. This study would support the first in its conclusion, 
by arguing that a bus rail system was, quote, a superior alternative, end quote, to the all-bus system that already existed at the time. Now, in the final phase of the study that was conducted between 1979 and 1980, a preliminary engineering design was provided for the recommended rail system, and a, prov and a provisional mass rapid transit authority was set up to overlook the possible construction of the MRT system. Now, again, despite the pro-MRT conclusions derived from the three-phase study, the government was still hesitant in going forward with its construction. The resistance was famously led by then-trade and industry minister Dr. Tony Tan, who very vocally pointed out that more emphasis should be placed on public housing rather than a rail system. This view was also supported by then-finance minister Dr. Go Keng Sui, who believed that the huge infrastructure cost of the rail system, which was estimated to be around 5 billion Sing dollars at the time, would be a huge drag on Singapore's economy. Now, while in hindsight this notion might seem almost laughable, at the time, Singapore was not as rich and developed as it is today, and with significant resources already being committed towards the construction of Changi Airport, it is somewhat understandable why Dr. Goh and Dr. Tan would be hesitant in committing even more resources when they already had a bus system. The other side of the argument was championed by then Minister of Communications, Ong Teng Chong, who argued on the basis of the possible spillover effects that an MRT system would bring. Rather than being just an additional means of transportation, Ong Teng Chong argued that the MRT would have a tremendous impact on the economic growth and development of Singapore by enhancing its image and increasing the overall standard of living for its citizens. Further, Ong Teng Chong also pointed out that land values around Singapore would increase as the MRT system enabled access to more citizens who were previously isolated from public transportation. Of course, in 2017, we can hold testament to that point when individuals residing in areas such as Pungo, Jukun, or even Kranji have access to public transportation through their neighborhood MRT. Ultimately, it will be Ong Teng Chong's side that won the debate when a final comprehensive traffic study in 1981 showed that an all-bus system would not be practical and efficient. Therefore, after more than 10 years of studies, proposals, and debates, the government finally gave the green light to begin construction on Singapore's rail system in 1982, marking the historic moment when the idea of an MRT system went from conception to reality. From this period, it was clear to see that SMRT in its early days was still very much a public entity that was under the complete influence of our government. After all, if you can recall, the entity set up to manage the construction of the MRT system was named the Provisional Mass Rapid Transit Authority, and that the rail system was a crucial part of state planning to meet the public transportation demands of Singapore. With the approval of the MRT system, the government set up an entity known as MRTC, or the Mass Rapid Transit Corporation in 1983, to build and manage the train network. The MRTC would formally take over the roles of the Provisional Mass Rapid Transit Authority, and during its reign it would oversee the development of the east-west and north-south lines, covering phases such as you know, Yochukang to Outram Park in October of 1983, as well as Outram Park to, Clement to Clementi in January of 1984, and so on. Eventually, after a number of years of development, the train system finally began its operations in November of 1987, serving customers from Yochukang to Topayo. It was also during this time that the entity Singapore Mass Rapid Transit Limited, or SMRT, was officially incorporated to take over operations of the MRT lines. The next few years would go by somewhat smoothly, 
With more stations along the east-west and north-south lines opening and expanding as the MRT system gained traction among citizens. At this point, however, it would be good to highlight a few things. Now, it is interesting to see here how our state planners decided to replace the provisional MRT authority with the SMRT company to manage the train operations and to set up a private corporation at that, which blurs the line between public and private. After all, if the government wanted to, it could have very well maintained full operational control and provide transportation free of charge for the whole of Singapore. I mean, since the taxpayers already bore the cost of the construction and development of the MRT networks, couldn't they continue to do so for the operations costs, you know, maintenance and staff wages going forward? But of course, with SMRT charging fares to customers, just like how taxi drivers or bus op operators would, this meant that SMRT was not a completely public entity any longer. And just like any other private corporation, SMRT would have to compete in the marketplace to survive, a large part of which comes from providing a, tr a superior transportation alternative than its rivals. Now, in light of the recent MRT failures, many observers have pointed out how this market-oriented structure of SMRT led to a culture of you know, profit-chasing, excessive cost-cutting, and poor maintenance at the expense of passengers. However, what is often underlooked is how the profit motives led to innovation that benefited riders. One fascinating result of this was how SMRT pioneered Singapore's earliest cashless payment system through implementing a magnetic fare card in 1990. Since it was incredibly tedious for both operators and for commuters to pay their ride fares using coins and notes, the magnetic fare card, which was the first major stored value facility to be introduced in Singapore, provided incredible, incredible value through its convenience. And don't you think that this is somewhat remarkable? I mean, this is decades before WeChat and its QR codes, before PayLa, PayNow, or Lee Sien Long's infamous cashless society speech. And yet, here we have innovation and disruption bringing about an entirely new payments model to replace the clunky and inconvenient one using notes and coins. Had SMRT been run as a, as a completely public entity, might we have nets or easeling cards as we know them today? Moving on, towards the turn of the century, Questions were again being asked of the adequacy of Singapore's transportation network in meeting demand. And in the year 2000, SMRT answered these doubts by listing on the Singapore Exchange, which is when a privately held company sells its shares to external shareholders such as individuals or other corporations, in which it becomes a publicly held company. Now, listing on an exchange is usually done to raise funds, and in SMRT's case, it was towards the ambitious goal of being Singapore's first multimodal transport company. They did this through acquiring another transport, transportation operator, Trans Island Bus Services, in July 2001, bringing the total workforce in SMRT to about 6,000 employees and, the, and, and its transportation fleet consisting of 790 buses, 2,000 taxis, and 106 MRT trains with 19 LRT trains. The closer integration of different transport modes such as buses, trains, and taxis, SMRT hoped, would prove to be more robust at meeting transportation demand and more capable at delivering value and convenience to riders. However, note that listing on an exchange does not mean that you get funded for free. In return for the contributions paid per share issued, the new shareholders will get to vote on key issues of the firm, 
and will form another set of stakeholders for SMRT to satisfy by way of good financial performances that drive up the stock's price or by being profitable enough to issue dividends. With this move, therefore, it was increasingly the case that SMRT was moving further and further away from being a purely governmental entity. Where SMRT historically had the government and its taxpayers to fund infrastructure development or expansions, now SMRT had other avenues such as its own operational profits or shareholder contributions. But of course, with the SMRT being such a key part of Singapore's public transportation network, there was little incentive for the government to give up control. Indeed, Rather than relinquishing control through the listing, they merely refashioned it, with Singapore's investment arm, Tamasek Holdings, obtaining a 54% majority owner position when SMRT sold their shares to the public. So, how did the hybrid public-private SMRT perform as a listed company? Well, in terms of providing public transportation, surely the company succeeded massively on this front, as annual rail ridership grew from 388 million in 2003 to a whopping 755.7 million in 2016, which, translate, which translates to a 94.8% increase over the span of 13 years. While you could definitely say that some of this increase in ridership was due to the increasing Singaporean population as a whole, note that between 2000 and 2016, Singapore's population grew from 4.027 million to 5.607 million, an increase of roughly 39.2% over a 16-year period. Therefore, with annual ridership outpacing population growth over a shorter period, this highlights the increasing reliance from passengers on the MRT system as a key mode of transportation, as well as the increasing value that SMRT provides to society at large. Elsewhere, it is interesting to note of the innovations and changes to the SMRT business model that has taken place since the listing. For instance, in order to meet rising transportation volume, SMRT's in-house engineers developed the Titan Automatic Fare Collection Gates that boasts features such as having sensor technologies to, de to detect ankle movements so as to prevent fare evasion, or being 10% more energy efficient and reliable than the old fare gates. Such features help SMRT efficiently and accurately collect rider fares amidst the millions of riders that use the trains each day. In terms of its business model, I'm sure that most of you can tell by the advertisements or retail shops that fill our MRT stations that MRT fares are not the only source of revenue for SMRT's train businesses. And with the MRT trains serving millions of passengers each day, having an, a 7-Eleven or an Old Changki or a Guardian around uh, an MRT station provides convenience for consumers looking to pick up a drink or some snacks for the commute, and importantly, provides a platform where brands can garner massive exposure for their business growth or for the launch of new products. In fact, SMRT's financial performance from, from fiscal year 2016 reveals that their rental and advertising revenue is its most profitable business venture. With the company earning 106.1 million in operating profit from 174.6 million of operational revenue, an impressive margin of 60.8%. Compare this now with SMRT's main business, its rail operations, where in fiscal year 2016, the company generated 681 million in top line revenue, but only 7.4 million in operating profit a relatively measly margin of 1.08%. So, the next time you're on your train commute with your friends, 
You can mention this as a sort of you know fun fact that while the train operations generate roughly 3.9 times the advertising and uh, rental business in terms of revenue, it only contributes 7% as much as the commercial side in terms of operating profit. This is telling of how tight the margins are in the real business since expenses such as maintenance, staff costs, fuel, and electricity can eat a lot into revenue. Or 554 million in fiscal year 2016 to be exact. However, despite all the increases in your know, annual ridership, all the innovations, all the changes to the business model, perhaps what people remember or perceive more are the failures or MRT disruptions that have occurred. And during SMRT's period as a listed company, these incidents were certainly prevalent. The first disruptions were in December of 2011, where on two separate days during the busy holiday season, several trains stalled for six hours along the North-South Line, leaving 200,000 commuters directly affected. Since then, disruptions have continued to feature, with several more occurring in the following month of January 2012, and many more happening in 2015 and 2016 as well. Among the myths of candidates to blame for SMRT's failures, including management or the organizational culture, its position as a listed company was always one that stuck. As the argument went, being a listed company meant introducing additional stakeholders to satisfy, which runs against the interests of the existing stakeholders, namely the millions of passengers taking the train every day. This leads to two separate problems. The first being that it distracted the company from delivering its utmost best service to passengers, and secondly, that profits were being siphoned from maintenance and reinvestment within the company to shareholders. This is neatly summarized by senior transport correspondent Christopher Tan in his July 2016 op-ed piece where he mentions that, quote, when an entity is set up to serve multiple masters, it could well end up serving none. In the case of SMRT, it is clear that it has been trying valiantly to juggle opposing interests, and, unf and fairly or unfairly, it has been getting a lot of flack of late for enriching shareholders at the expense of commuters, end quote. Lo and behold, during July of 2016, those who were against SMRT being a listing company got their wish, as major shareholder Tomasek Holdings offered to buy out the other shareholders to take the company private. The main reason for this move, as noted again by Christopher Tan in another op-ed piece in November of 2016, was, quote, so that the real operator could focus entirely on serving the public without the distractions of being a listed company, end quote. This move was therefore intended to solve the conflicts of interest between shareholders and stakeholders and hopefully witness the end of SMRT's failures. What is also interesting was that the offer came five days after the government's transport ministry announced a new, quote, rail financing framework, end quote, where, where the Land Transport Authority would take over the rail operating assets from SMRT at its net book value of $1.06 billion. This meant that LTA would now bear complete responsibility of all the rail infrastructure and funding related to it, whereas SMRT would merely focus on the operational side of the rail business. So, after the shareholders agreed to the buyout offer from Tomasek, the organizational character of SMRT took another drastic transformation, and on October 31st, 2016, it spent its last day as a publicly listed company on the Singapore exchange. The new SMRT was now asset light, having sold all their real operating assets such as trains and the real network to LTA, and was now focused solely on the operational aspects of the real business. Further, 
The Masek's buyout meant that SMRT was now subsumed under the direct ownership of a government entity, meaning that it looked more like a national company even though it had just privatized from the stock market. This can be witnessed in how LTA took over responsibility for the capital assets of SMRT, or how Tomasek has a large say in the top-level decisions of the company, or even how Transport Minister Kabun Wan is nowadays being held accountable for the ongoing SMRT failures in 2017. However, this is not to say that SMRT is now a pure government entity, or that it was nationalized in the takeover. For one, most instances of nationalization are done through force and rarely with compensation, whereas this buyout was done with the agreement of the remaining shareholders and at a price above the then market price of the SMRT stock. Also, while it is incredibly likely that Tomase can bail out SMRT in their time of need, for all intents and purposes, SMRT is more than capable of generating the income and profits needed to survive. Now, Having gone through the history of SMRT's real business and its numerous transformations, are we able to definitively discern the company's corporate existence? Are we able to answer the question if it is public or private? Can we tell if it serves the interests of the public or that of its shareholders? Well, to be honest, it is actually both. However, in order to help with the explanation, I think we need to, be, to make some distinctions. First of all, there are two senses in which SMRT could be public or private, which could make things really, really confusing. There is the public or private of the company's identity and history, such as its founders or its parent company. You know, for instance, we know that you know we know for sure that McDonald's is a private company in the sense that it wasn't set up for the government or set up particularly to serve citizens citizen interests. Whereas, on the other hand, we know that the Health Promotion Board is a completely public entity or a national one since it was, meant, since it was set up and meant to serve the interests of Singaporeans. Secondly, there's the public or private of whether a company is listed on the stock exchange. Companies such as Apple or Facebook or Singtel that have shares on the stock market which are available for trading are referred to as public or publicly listed companies. Though, as we can see from Singtel's case, they might not necessarily be private identity companies such as Apple or Facebook. On the other hand, a company which does not have its stock listed on exchange for trading are known as private or privately held companies. So companies such as Uber or Huawei or you know, even Singapore Pools are referred to as privately held since no one can trade their shares on a stock exchange. You know, even though in the case of Singapore Pools, it is very clearly a public or national entity owned by their government. So, to clarify and summarize once more, you can be public or private in terms of your company identity, and you can be public or private in terms of whether you are listed on a stock exchange. These two senses of public or private don't necessarily have to be in conflict, meaning that in the case of Facebook, you can have, public, you can have private companies which are publicly listed, or in the case of Singapore Pools, you can have public or national companies which are privately held. So, after all this, where does SMRT lie? Well, I've mentioned earlier that the company is both. So how is this so? Well, on the sense of being listed or not, it is clear that since November 2016, SMRT has been privatized or privately held. On the other hand, you know, on the aspect of its corporate identity, I think it is safe to say that SMRT leans more towards being public or a national company. This can be traced back to, it, to the origins of how the company was set up by the government or how it is meant to serve the public's interest in delivering transportation. 
Moreover, with the recent privatization deal, the government has much more say in the operational outcomes of SMRT, as Tamasic Holdings can influence top-level decisions, while LTA can influence the state of capital expenditure on the rail network. Finally, even though SMRT competes in the marketplace to provide transportation, it very clearly holds a monopoly in terms of being the only company that is licensed to operate trains within Singapore, which lends further credence to it being a public or national entity. Therefore, it is on this basis that SMRT is both a public company and a privately held one. And with that brings the end to today's episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did making it and that you learned something interesting about SMRT's, you know, certainly twisting and colorful history. If you like this episode, please help out by liking, sharing, and subscribing to the Economical Rise podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Or if you want to check out related content, you can do so through the social media links in the description below. Thanks again for listening. This has been your host, Danny, at the Economical Rise podcast. We're over here. You have to serve you the grains of capitalism.